It's yonder. Dear listeners, <laughs> welcome to episode number eight of the Yonder Podcast. Every two weeks, I interview a new voice, someone thinking about remote work, distributed companies, virtual teams, telecommuting cultures, all that sort of stuff. And this week, I'm talking to Seth Brown from Lullabot. I know Seth because I co-founded Lullabot 10 years ago, and I've worked with Seth for the past seven plus years. Uh, and Seth is a, is a big thinker. He's got lots of, lots of ideas and philosophies, and he's quoting from the Tao Te Ching and Thomas Friedman's World is Flat book and talking about Taylorism. Seth's such a smart guy, and we'll get to the interview with Seth in just a couple minutes. But first, I'd like to remind you that if you visit yonder.io, you can get on the Yonder mailing list, and we'll email you when new episodes come out. You can, of course, also find links there to subscribe in iTunes and Stitcher, Google Play. You'll also find links to our Twitter and Facebook pages, and... uh yeah, we're still getting word out about the podcast, so if you're inclined to leave a review on iTunes, it will really help new listeners to find us. All right, let's get to the interview with Seth Brown. Hi, Seth. Hey, Jeff. How's it going? I'm good. Welcome to the Yonder podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. You've been to the Yonder event Several times, twice, two, twice, times. yeah, yeah. Gotten to spend some beautiful January weeks in San Diego. <laughs> Funny how that happens, isn't it? <laughs> Just <laughs> yeah, it's coincidentally it's, kind of it's the winter in life. New England, and the event that we were organizing happens in San Diego. You're like, really, honey? It's work. I promise. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't think we're, we're not going to have uh, yonder in the first part of next year, but we may have some sort of an event next year. Uh, yeah. But, um, well, let's, let's, uh, do the thing that we do when we start this podcast. Seth, where are you talking to us from? Where do you, where do you live and work? I am in very sunny Carbondale, Colorado, um, which is just down Valley, down river from Aspen, Colorado. Um, and I live near the confluence of these two rivers, uh, up in the mountains, um, the crystal and the roaring fork and generally fly in and out of Aspen is sort of my, I do this quite often. Um, I'm a regular there. They know me by first name, uh, at the TSA line. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's a beautiful place to live and raise children. It's very safe. Um, I probably shouldn't tell our podcast listeners this, but I don't lock my door. See, now I'm going to have to, but <laughs> Oops. <laughs> At least well, during maybe, the day. Maybe they don't know where you live. Yeah. Oh, well, I guess you just told them. Yes. I think I just told them in my name. They pretty much can put it together. <laughs> but the TSA <laughs> is guarding your house. Uh, so yes. Good yes. stuff. <laughs> um, so uh, you, uh, your title is COO at Lullabot. Yeah, yeah, which which was kind of a funny. Uh, I kind of feel like you found that title for me. I, um, <laughs> we're always looking uh, for titles for people. Yeah, yeah, uh, chief operating officer, um, which I've heard described in in many ways. Um, it can be sort of a, a a second in command that's you know being groomed for a CEO title in some companies. Um, it can relate much more specifically to sort of the administrative operations of a company, things like human resources and finance and 
Um, or it can also be used in the context of someone like in the military, for instance, who is actually directing the operations, you know, on the ground. So they're involved in, in the task of, you know, whatever they're directing. So it's a pretty versatile title um, and uh, given to people when the CEO and president is not available. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, it just means Seth will Seth will figure it out. That's the right, title right. Lullabot means. Uh, and you kind of, well, you could probably state this better than me, but you oversee operations, uh, but sort of uh, everything from re- resources, uh, people management, financial management, um, and and sort of the administrative stuff, too. Yeah, yeah. Um, I watch over our admin team. Um, and although they're actually a very kind of lean, um, pretty self-managing uh, side of the company. So I actually end up spending a lot more of my time uh, both on sales um, and then also uh, directing client services. Um, and we're a client services business. So the the resourcing, the staffing, the the project strategy, um, my counterpart, uh, Brian Scourin, who's the president and I are kind of the, the, he's the lead sales guy. I'm sort of his Robin to his Batman. Um, and, uh, we, you know, go out and do road shows and meet clients and build those relationships and kind of chart a path forward, um, in terms of the work that we're going to do over the next quarter or the next year. So, uh, talk to me about joining a distributed company um, at the time you did and how that sort of differed from your previous experience. Sure. Yeah. I came out of another digital agency. Um, I had been there for six years and it was co-located. It's a company called blue tent. They're still around here in the roaring fork Valley. And um, when I, uh, when I started there, um, we had just, uh, at blue tent, like some things were, some technologies were just kind of emerging. Like I remember actually Skype, um, you know, when that came onto the scene and, and, uh, the, the phenomena of starting to chat to people that were working 10 feet away from you and instead of getting up and walking over. Um, and it's funny how even at a co-located company, all of these tools, project management tools for task management, wikis and um, multi-chat tools were creeping in uh, to Blue Ten as a digital agency, even as a co-located company. Um, when I switched to, to Lullabot, I think um, it took it to a new level, obviously. And it, it was nice in that Blue Ten had had certain people working from home uh, that were away from the main office in Boulder. And it was not working well. Um, we ended up kind of having to shut down that experiment. And I think the difficulty was that those people were on a totally different playing field um, and didn't really, they, they weren't privy to all kinds of uh, conversations and communications that we just sort of assumed they were. Um, and because the communication didn't have to be intentional, they got left out. Um, and, and that part of the business didn't, didn't prosper. So when I came to Lullabot, it was really eye-opening and it was a revelation to see, oh, if everybody's on the same playing field, um, this all works a lot better and, and no one is really left out and no one feels disconnected from the company. Um, I think people may get the idea that there's a lot of disconnection in distributed companies, but I actually feel in many ways closer to my coworkers at Lullabot on a daily basis than I did to the people that I came in to work with each day. And I'm not quite sure what to attribute that to. It's, it's almost kind of magical. So you're going to attribute it to magic. I don't think magic you're seems listeners. like the logical choice, doesn't it? <laughs> well, yeah. yeah. The whole idea of this podcast, Seth, is to try to shed some light. I, <laughs> I, I, I'd like to think, um, so I've been thinking a lot and there's probably this thread. If you, if you're listening to all of the yonder podcasts, there's this thread of, um, Nonverbal and verbal, you know, nonverbal communication uh, is this, this evolutionary kind of, you know, the way that we communicate without talking um, is something that can't happen 
in in a in a distributed environment. You have to put words to it, um, which is better communication. It's more cerebral communication. It's it's better. Um, it's better to express yourself. Um, and I think that if you can create a culture around that, uh, um, I don't know, it can, it can create a, a level of, of connectedness. There, there is certainly a role to in-person, um, communication, you know, being, being in the same room together. But, uh, but, but I think that the, you know, needing to kind of squeeze the communication through the, the cyber pipes uh, is, is actually a good discipline uh, as well. Yeah, the intentionality of the communication, yeah. I think, is much higher. Yeah. One of the things that I remember about being in an office um, and in a leadership role, because uh, I was the one of the early employees and we grew from about three to 30 people and I ended up as a director of client services at Blue Tent. And one thing that you find yourself in is a lot of meetings, both necessary and unnecessary. And eventually you kind of adopt this almost defensive attitude of like, I've got to find some time to hide today to get my quote unquote actual work done. Um, you know, let's say your project work or your commitments to your clients mm -hmm. and you keep getting pulled into meetings. Whereas when you work from home, it, it's you have a lot more flexibility uh, in how you structure your time, especially at a place like Lullabot where there's so many different people on so many different time zones. And what I find is I can take those spaces throughout the day where they fit best and as I need them and not feel like they're threatened. And so then when I am on calls or hangouts or other forms of synchronous communication, uh, it's almost easier to be present. You're, you're, you don't have this def built-in defense mechanism showing up in your subconscious like, man, when's this meeting going to be over? I got to get get to this or that. Um, so things aren't compressed into a you know eight-hour day um, along the same hours uh, where everybody's in the office at once and everybody needs everything at once. So there's also a little more space as well as a little more intentionality uh, for communication. And I love that. Um, I remember reading uh, The Year Without Pants, Scott Birkin's book about his time at uh, working at WordPress, Automatic, uh, at Automatic, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, working on WordPress. And, um, you know, talking a lot about how uh, at, at Automatic, most of the communication is asynchronous. Most of the communication is, is written. And that really drives them into a results-oriented space um, better than anything else could. Uh, it's, it's not about whether Bob is sitting at the desk looking busy, you know, it's, it's about how many commits Bob has made and whether he's, you know, answering questions as he needs to and, uh, making thoughtful interjection interjections into the discussions happening on email or on, you know, IRC or Basecamp or Slack, whatever you're, you're using for, for that sort of chat. Um, yeah, I think there's a lot to be said for that as well. Writing, uh, as you say, Jeff Robbins, good writers tend to be good thinkers. Um, but I think you can also turn that on its head and say writing is a very disciplined way of thinking. Yeah. So uh, talk talk to me a little bit more about sort of synchronous and asynchronous communication. Um, I feel like different companies have sort of developed different philosophies around this. But what's what's your philosophy around this like what do you yeah, what do you what do you prefer and kind of what what roles and maybe we should define those things for for people who aren't so deep in, inside baseball like we steeped are. in our language yeah yeah, yeah so uh um asynchronous communication means uh um communication that doesn't need to happen at the same time. It doesn't need to be in sync. Uh, so it tends to be written messages, bulletin boards, a book is asynchronous communication, but so is message boards or email. Uh, whereas synchronous is stuff where people need to inter interact with each other at the same time, real time communication. So this, us talking to each other right now is synchronous communication. And then I've found that there tends to be sort of a gray area in between, like a text mm -hmm. message gets there pretty quickly. And most people would like a response pretty quickly, but 
not not three days later, really, you know. Uh, and so, so I, you know, I think that there's sort of these kind of gray areas in between. Um, but I know I'm a very, I have a very sync kind of kind of a synchronous oriented way to myself like i like to talk things out and and uh you know get on the phone with people and and think things out um whereas other people prefer to write things out and i i think you're a little bit more on that side but but things kind of develop their different roles how how do you, how do you hold those different roles at, at lullabot Sure. Yeah. As you mentioned, you know, I tend to, well, I can't, you know, I was a writer originally in my career. Um, I was an English major. Uh, writing has always been a very natural, comfortable place for me to, you know, develop my ideas and express them and share them. Um, so that's actually, I feel like something that's really helped me fit in and succeed in a virtual company. Um, you kind of have to be able to write. And and I, I tend to um, sometimes want to push away synchronous communication, uh, meetings and the like in favor of asynchronous. And I actually think that gets down to some deep sort of, uh, fundamentals of personality. So, you know, there's these concepts of certain dualities, like people who are think slow and people who think fast. Um, and then of course there's extroversion and introversion. Um, and I would say if, if you sort of mapped this all out, I would think that people who tend to be a little bit more on the thinking slow side or the introversion side, you know, may strongly prefer asynchronous communication. Whereas, you know, the, the fast thinkers, the extroverts, um, they tend to probably lean towards synchronous communication. You know, I want to be in the room with everybody. I want to be chatting. I love the energy of people. You know, it fills me with energy would sort of be the, the extroverts position or the, and so for me, um, I kind of sit in the middle in a lot of those Myers-Briggs things and stuff. Like I'm right on the line of, of INFJ, ENFJ. So between introversion and extroversion. Uh, and I think when it comes to thinking fast, thinking slow, I, I bet it's similar. Um, so I, I can go either way. Um, and I, I feel like there are certain tasks that lend themselves well to synchronous communication and certain tasks that lend themselves well to asynchronous. Um, and, you know, that's a we could open up a huge long discussion about where to qualify all those things. But there's a balance. And I, I just think that a lot of that actually has to do with people's personalities. Um, some of the best we do these little things called 515s. And uh, they're sort of five minutes to read, 15 minutes to write kind of end of the week reports about like, here's how my week went. And there's a few questions to kind of get people thinking and then they send them to to their manager or their teammates. And some of the best, most surprising 515s that I get come from some of the most quiet people at Lullabot. And you're just sort of like, wow, you were thinking all these things? Like, why didn't you say any of this? Like, you know, we've been on the phone three times this week and you never mentioned this. And um, so I think there's, you know, the nice thing about a distributed company like Lullabot, um, where automatic takes it to sort of an extreme of like, we're going to be mostly asynchronous because, you know, the philosophies that um, they've laid out uh, sort of lean that direction. Um, you know, I think Lullabot has a nice balance there. Maybe I'm thinking more of sort of base camp and 37 signals when I say leaning more towards um, asynchronous or having a strong preference for that. But I think we tend to kind of fall somewhere in the middle. Um, and I think the, the founders' personalities really in influence that, you know, uh, how you preferred to communicate, how Matt preferred to communicate, um, you know, what you guys were good at. I think those things uh, end up really uh, in unexpected ways influencing the development and the evolution of the company's communication. And you guys both are, are good writers as well. Um, and so writing has been something that's always played a central role. We've, we've always been good communicators. Um, and we also like to get on the phone like this and do things like podcasts and hangouts and Zooms and, you know, whatever the cool kids are doing these days for video chat. But so it's interesting this this interaction between personality types and communication styles. Uh it seems like it's probably a good idea to have a a variety of communication styles available to sort of sweep up 
and collect the different personality types, ways of communicating. <laughs> Cause you're saying like you get on these synchronous, you know, phone calls with people and, and then you get written communication from them and it, and it seems like a different thought process, uh, different, um, different communication that you're getting from them. Um, yeah. It gives certain people a space to, um, to, to show up as their best self. Um, whereas in, you know, let's say a brick and mortar, a co-located company, um, you know, an extreme introvert may really struggle with that. Um, actually I remember there was a, a moment at the retreat. So at Lullabot's annual retreats, we do these things. I'm not going to name any names here, but we do these things called circles at the end of the day. And um, The idea is that everybody, you, you break up into smaller groups of about five or six people. Um, there's a moderator and it's a safe space for everybody to kind of talk about their feelings, their emotions, how their day went, what they're thinking about. Um, and you sort of pass a, a you know, the, the, I think of the Native American concept of a, a talking stick, you know, where it gets it gets passed around and whoever's holding this stick is not to be interrupted. Um, you just listen. And um, it's we've had a couple of times where people have expressed, you know, even discomfort with that um, as being, you know, not something they're super comfy with. And, and for the most part, they've they've overcome it and decided that it has value. But I think we just make assumptions that everyone is sort of the same as we are. And uh, it's not always a fair assumption. And, and it may mean that certain people don't have the space to show up as their most effective self. Mm. You know? Yeah. It's, it, it, there's, man, there's like several, <laughs> it, it, so these podcasts are all sort of blending together, uh, the different episodes that I've done. Yeah, uh, you and Jake Goldman talked a lot well, about this. We talked this, about introversion and extroversion. I talked about that with yeah. Bree Reynolds in the last podcast as well. Um, there's also this uh, role of kind of um, vulnerability and acceptance um, that we need remote workers to be able to be vulnerable enough to share when they're having a hard time. Uh, and we as employers, as managers need to be accepting of that, uh, and, and sort of a allowing to create an environment enough where people can kind of feel free to be themselves uh and and ultimately yeah. kind of find like i'm saying like find the best way of communicating allow people to be more introverted allow people to be more extroverted allow people to speak up or don't speak up um you know ultimately you know there is a bottom line and you need to to get work done uh um but i think a, a big part of um people working from home is finding their own methods for productivity, you know, kind of what works best for them. Uh, and, and that, that autonomy is, is, uh, on, on, if, you know, if you take a job as a remote worker, that's going to be on you <laughs> and different companies have different ways of, of, uh, incentivizing that. But, uh, but ultimately, you know, it's a matter of helping people to find their most productive self. Exactly. Or Whether that's maybe the time effective of, self is a better word. Yeah, their most effective self. I feel like whether that is the time of day that you work, you know, I'm somebody who likes to to take two hours at lunch to go work out and clear my head. But then I, I also like to come back to work at night, which is a time when I tend to do my best writing. Um, is sort of after the kids have gone to bed and I love having the space to sort of pick my moments, you know, when I'm going to show up at most effectively. So there's that dimension. And then there's also like, we were talking about the guys or gals that write, you know, great five fifteens, but don't like to talk as much. You know, we often give our, our, you know, I certainly give the people that I manage directly the choice, you know, would you like to sit down for a half an hour? Uh, each week and chat or would you like to you know write something at the end of the week and tell me how things are going and different people have different preferences there and I, I like that we're open to 
all of those different preferences. So again, you know, it's letting people show up as their best selves. Um, yeah. Uh, submarining, I was going to mention one thing, you know, the most dangerous thing, I feel like when, when we went to both yonders, the thing that everybody said is like the death knell for someone at a distributed company is this thing we call submarining, which is where someone sort of disappears off the radar from, you know, all forms of communication. And that sometimes you can remedy that, you know, through talking to them and finding out what's going on and seeing is, is this sort of a temporary, you know, interruption in your life that's related to something specific and why didn't, you know, why were you not comfortable telling us that was going on? Um, Sometimes that works, but often it's sort of like the beginning of the end or even the end of the end um, when, when people do that at distributed companies. And it's sort of like, you know, they may need something that they're just not getting. And it may be something as, um, dare we say, uh, you know, basic as like, you know, I don't really work that hard unless I'm in a room with other human beings who I can see are working that hard. Um, you know, and I think that may be some, a a motivation for some people. Uh, and that's one of the few things that it's hard to give it a distributed company. Although I think people that struggle with that sometimes find, um, places to work outside of their office. Um, you know, places to, uh, to go and, and, you know, be amongst other humans working, uh, doing their own work. So, yeah. Are there certain things that you look for when hiring people, um, around sort of a proclivity towards remote work? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I definitely look at how candidates present themselves in writing. Um, that's really important. So, you know, th- there's a there's two components typically to Lullabot applications. One is, you know, a cover letter, a resume, you know, the typical answers to some questionnaire questions. Uh, and then the other is is a video. And both exercises are you know, great sort of litmus tests for how someone's going to perform at, at a distributed company. You know, it's sort of like, how do you communicate in writing, you know, cover letters, even things like I tend to be overly sensitive because I used to be an editor, but <laughs> spelling and grammar and, and just sort of the overall sense of fluency um, and authenticity that someone speaks with in writing is a good uh, indication that they're going to be successful Um, when we get, you know, super business speak kind of, uh, somebody who's just kind of dropping business ease, uh, with reckless abandon and, and not communicating with a lot of attention, but just sort of trying to, uh, or intention, but they're just trying to like check off a lot of buzzwords. That's usually a bad sign. You know, I really want someone in writing to speak like a human being. I want to feel like there's a human being on the other side of this application because whatever they're doing to transmit that humanness uh, through writing is going to serve them well when they come into a virtual company. Um, And then the video itself is also a great indication, not just of some sort of basic technical skills like are you capable of making a video, you know, like, are you willing to, to go out on a limb and do this thing? But also, you know, it's, it certainly has nothing to do with appearance, but it's just like, you know, are you comfortable in this format video, which you're going to have to use in a lot of conversations um, that you're going to have as, as a lullabot. Um, so I, I definitely look at those things um, with interviews. You know, again, it's, it's, I look for presence. Um, You have to be able to maintain presence on a phone call. If you're kind of off in all sorts of directions and not really tracking to the questions and um, maybe maybe that's because you're nervous, but it can also be a sign that you have a hard time being being present with people on the phone and focusing. And that's a pretty critical skill uh, to look for in, in interviews. Yeah. Um, there's, it's talking about hiring such always such a difficult sort of thing because you're talking about judging people, (laughs) you know, like, so in ways that we're not supposed to, well, yeah. So you're saying like, 
you know, is there a role that charisma plays or, um, I, you know, I think that there's some, some, yeah, that's a dangerous thread in the sweater to pull on. Um, because you, you get into trouble fast when you, when you make, you know, when you think about making those kinds of judgments, but with writing, you know, I feel like that one's pretty clear and clean. You know, you're just looking at the results and everyone's on an equal playing field. And I'll, I'll usually read first before I look at other parts of the candidate's communication, um, just to get a sense of, of that human being and, and whether that's coming through. Um, but I also look for the video for that. And again, you know, it's, it's definitely not about appearance. And I like to think that, you know, we can all maintain a certain equanimity, uh, you know, avoiding bias, let's mm-hmm. say, yeah, um, uh, towards people's, uh, appearances and whatever those re- may reveal about, I don't know, um, health, weight, gender, you know, race, uh, religion, like all of those things that you definitely don't want to factor into your, uh, equation when you're thinking about hiring. But I think underneath all of that, you are looking for a successful communicator, Mm-hmm. Um, someone who's going to be able to, in a virtual company or remote company, keep up and, and you know, be heard. Um, and there's, again, we've talked about all the different ways to do that and the different tools that you can use. But I think that that's something that I am looking for, you know, in addition, of course, to like the results, you know, the contributions to Drupal um, or other open source, you know, the the educational credentials, you know, what jobs they've held, um, those types of things. Those are all part of the picture in making these decisions. Um, but those are sort of like, you know, what gets you in the door. You know, we get a lot of applicants and that'll get you to the next level. But then there's got to be this sort of, um, I don't know what to call it, ineffable sense that, hey, this person's going to be a good communicator and they're going to be able to survive and thrive in a distributed company. And when you get so many applications as we do, you you need ways of filtering. Um, Yeah. We started doing the video thing a while back. I want to say five or six years ago. Uh, even more, maybe it was, uh, you did yeah, one, you did, I did one, one and, and yeah. uh, I've been here for seven years. So, and, uh, and it was a way to try and sort of replicate that kind of meeting someone at an event kind of, you know, kind of thing. It was just sort of like, cause you, you meet somebody and you kind of get a feel for it. I'm like, Oh, I, I know who this kind of person is or just, but you know, their mannerisms with you know, their sense of humor or, or whatever you can kind of get a, get a, at least for me, I feel like I can get a pretty good quick read on people. Um, and so we've been doing that and it's, it's always, it's felt good, but, uh, you know, it, it has been criticized as being potentially problematic in terms of, um, you know, judging people based on appearance or, you know, video presence or any of that kind of stuff. Uh, and yeah, I, you know, ultimately I think that's up to us as the watchers of the video. It's not the, the video's not the problem. It's up to us to remember, uh, not to, you know, to, to hire for the kind of diverse company that we would like to be. Um, I've heard, yeah, I've heard various takes on this and, you know, the primate brain that we all have, you, t- you, you talk about this sometimes, you know, it can be a, a dangerous thing. It's very primal, you know, it's, it's very quick to want to bring bias and, and put people in boxes and establish social hierarchy. And, you know, there's all of these sort of nonverbal, almost instinctual things or, happening. Or match even, based on your existing tribe. Uh, yeah, you know, uh, stuff like that. Yeah, that that person looks like Bob, so he must be like Bob. And you Bob's know? a great programmer, and, so let's hire this guy. Yeah, right. And already this person's in a box. Um, and and I think where we protect ourselves there is we also, you know, we also, especially when we're hiring developers, we want to look at code, we want to look at code samples, we want to look at contributions, um, and those things obviously play 
uh, probably a heavier role in you know who we interview. Those, those things are really what determines who we interview. This other more nuanced stuff that, like you're saying, walks a funny line. I would say that's where where we can justify that is that to communicate in a distributed company is very different and it has unique challenges and certain people will be successful and certain people will not. And some of that can be discerned um, in the way that people write and the way that people talk. Um, And for better or for worse, I think that's what we're looking for. Um, And, you know, it, it has nothing to do with the traditional notions of appearance or charisma. Um, I hope. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) it's a difficult thing as these podcasts are adding up. I'm nervous that people are listening to them and hearing me say the same things week after week. I can't remember exactly what I've said, but one of my sayings, and I can't remember if I've said this on the podcast or not, is if you don't communicate in a distributed company, you don't exist. Um, and so, you know, we need to hire people who are good communicators. What it, means to be a good communicator is going to vary from remote job to remote job, I suppose. But, um, but the flip side of that is this, this thing that we call submarining where people disappear. Um, and usually they have some justification. I was working, I was working really hard, but nonetheless, they just kind of go off the radar. Yeah. In a branch in GitHub that I haven't committed yet. (laughs) (laughs) You can't see it, but trust me. Um, a thing that you've done, you actually wrote an article on lullabot.com about this, um, uh, sort of the finances of being a remote company and whether this is a, um, sort of net advantage or, I mean, I think, I, I don't know that there's ever a question that it's a net disadvantage not to have an office, uh, I mean, like financially, uh, it may be a marketing disadvantage or some sort of, you know, market position branding, uh, kind of, kind of disadvantage, but, uh, but financially not to have the overhead. I think most people think it is an advantage, but there are a lot of other costs around travel and, and stuff like that. Um, talk to me a little bit about how you see the differences in in the way that finances work at at a uh, at a distributed company like Lullabot compared to um, sort of a company X brick and mortar company. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, the thing that I look to that is very telling. Um, we we sort of look at our numbers, um, our margins over and against. Uh, the both the industry uh, as well as um, even larger. So the industry would be people who file uh, with the same sort of tax code that Lullabot does. Um, and then we get another number, uh, which is we call real time, which is just sort of like kind of all companies um, tend to average X. Now, some of this gets into probably deeper into accounting than we want to go into and sort of what you put above the line and what you put below the line. But roughly speaking, Lullabot tends to have a pretty low gross profit margin. Um, So basically, our total sales minus our cost of goods sold, or in our case, it would be cost of sales because we're not a company that that sells widgets and has inventories and stuff like that. So it's basically how much we sell minus the cost it took to do that work. Um, so the labor, the tools, that sort of thing, we tend to come in around 40% uh, margin and the industry, people with our similar tax code come in around 56% and the majority of companies out there come in around 67%. So Lullabot in that sense is not very it doesn't look competitive ostensibly. But then when you look at the bottom line, the net profit margin, um, you know, call you could call this EBITDA or EDA for us because we don't, again, we don't have a lot of inventory. We don't deal in a lot of depreciation or interest expense. Um, but our, our net profit uh, is, or, you know, for instance, for 2016 was around 15%. Uh, and when you look at the industry, it's around 9%. 
when you look at the real time, you know, all companies, that's around, you know, 7% in 2016. So that is really interesting to me. Like somehow we are making up a huge amount of ground between, you know, our, our um, gross profit and our bottom line. And I think some of that speaks to not having a building, a physical plant, not, not sort of, we, we do this thing called PEX cards where we give people a certain allowance to buy their equipment, but we're not having to own all of that stuff. And now that the IRS has, has also uh, risen the depreciation threshold, you know, a lot of those things aren't even things that we have to, that we can just expense them. You know, we don't have to, to keep them on the books. Um, so yeah, I mean, I may be going a little too finance geek here, but the overall message is that somehow we tend to be very efficient uh, as distributed companies. And when we've been to yonder, you know, I've talked to other uh, ops folks and finance folks, and this seems to be a pattern, you know, like, um, and, and again, I don't know if that's all attributable to the building because we all spend a lot of money on our retreats, for instance, um, and, and often that cost is comparable to what you might pay in rent for a year. Yeah. Um, it may be that you need less uh, in the way of, of HR or administrative personnel, or, or it may be that the people that work at distributed companies as fairly sophisticated, you know, white collar folks are, are pretty self-managing. Um, and so you can get by with sort of leaner overhead. Uh, I don't know exactly what to trace it to, but it's definitely a phenomena that we, we see. Yeah. I, um, went to visit uh, a friend, uh, who runs a company and was, they had this beautiful office and I said, wow, this is a really nice office. And they said, yeah, it's only, I think it was like $24,000 a month. <laughs> <laughs> and I just my jaw yeah. hit the floor. How many people's uh, salaries is that? Yeah, and then and, then, uh, and I went back. So that's that's crazy. You know, maybe it's twenty thousand dollars a month, but you know, still it was it was really expensive. And 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 then I went back and did the math on how much our retreats cost. Uh, and it was you know we end all ended up in a pretty similar ballpark. Uh to get people together. Um, and yeah, I mean some basic math, you know, if you have to send 50 people somewhere and between plane tickets and food and lodging, it's $2,000 a person, you know, a 50 person company will can reasonably expect to spend a hundred thousand dollars on their annual retreat. And yeah, that covers a lot of months rent in a lot of places. Um, so it's, it is, uh, I think there is some of that, you know, we're, we're, Maybe that's not where we're saving. Um, I, I tend to come back to, to the belief that it's more hiring people that are self-managing um, because of the nature of the work, you know, especially open source software where people got into these positions because they were already really good at being productive in the open source world. Um, you know, it's... Well, it's not just that. I mean, do you think you would... I like to think that part of managing remote people is teaching people to manage themselves because you can't micromanage remote workers by definition. You can't look over their shoulder. You can't be there. I mean, I, there, there are tools out there that attempt to literally watch people as they're sitting at their desks and try to micromanage them remotely. Uh, but it gets very big brother very quickly. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, yeah. but I've always sort of felt like it's kind of part of the necessity of being a distributed company to teach people to, it's the same stuff we were talking about to, to find their effectiveness, uh, um, themselves. Hmm. Yeah. I love that, that adage in the Tao teaching. That's something to the effect of, um, if you want the people to be trustworthy, give them your trust. And it's kind of a funny backwards way of saying it, but I think there's a lot of truth to that. Um, that when you give people autonomy and, and, you know, the Daniel Pink virtues, you know, autonomy, mastery, and purpose, uh, as well as trust, people tend to step up and, and be worthy of that. Um, and when you don't, you know, people start thinking in terms of gaming the system. 
and I don't think you get the best out of people. Um, and I think in general, like there's just a huge shift away from, um, in management thinking, modern management thinking is really moving away from like Taylorism and scientific management and these ideas that, you know, people should be sort of components in a larger machine, uh, that are fungible and replaceable. And, you know, you can just sort of like plug them in like parts and, you know, drive them towards certain goals and efficiencies. And if they don't hit them, fire them and hire somebody else. Like that's very much a, a legacy management style that, you know, even in the industrial world, I think that that thinking is changing, you know, where, where, where it originally stemmed from. Um, you know, we're a long way from the factories of, of Henry Ford. And, and so I think just in general, you know, we take steps forward as human beings, we take steps back, you know, sometimes big ones, but, uh, we are, um, I think in general, we're evolving and we're realizing that, you can get more out of people if you allow them again, coming back to the theme that seems to have emerged from this conversation. If you let them show up as their best self, mm-hmm. you know, you're going to end up getting, getting more out of them and they're going to get more out of working with you and for you. And, um, you know, I think a lot of, a lot of thinking around this stuff is changing, uh, you know, as companies become open books and transparent and, you know, do all become distributed and sort of let people be self-managing. I mean, a lot of these ideas would have been considered downright radical, you know, 20, 25 years ago, maybe even 10 years ago. Uh, and now they're becoming pretty mainstream. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that for a lot of, um, brick and mortar company leaders that I talked to who were sort of toying with the idea of, of, of starting to move to a more remote staff. It's that issues around trust and kind of going back to that Henry Ford way of thinking about workers, um, not in an explicit kind of way. I mean, you know, uh, not in an exploitive kind of way. I think, you know, these are modern thinkers, but there's just that kind of built in to the American work uh, uh, ethos. The, 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 you know, how we think of work uh, is not a place that we go and expect to be trusted um, and expect to manage ourselves or, um, find our most effective selves, you know? Um, I'm curious, um, Lullabot has very low turnover, uh, very, what do we call it in business? Very low attrition. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, as, as a founder of the company, I almost have a hard time being objective about why that might be, um, or how that works, you know, why, what, what, what it is about Lullabot that, that, that helps people to want to stick around and, and, uh, um, you know, I mean, there, there's some, basic kind of stuff like people aren't going to quit because their spouse got a job in another city or because their person they share a cubicle with is kind of gets on their nerves or, you know, those, those kinds of things. But what do what do you attribute that um, dedication (laughs) to? And, And especially as related to all this stuff that we're talking about, trust and culture and, communication yeah um magic (laughs) well and and i'm also i'm hesitant to pull it apart because i don't want to i don't want to take the magic out of it um yeah you know i don't want uh (laughs) to sort of uh uh dissect it to the point that it's like oh well it's it's this plus this you know and uh and 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 uh for 10 years of working at lullabot it did did feel like magic and that was a nice thing um i think we're you know we're a values driven company and i think the co-founders <clears throat> you and and matt <laughs> did you actually really led this initiative did a phenomenal job of identifying core values 
that have been resonant with our people and have stood the test of time, you know, for the challenges that we've had to go through and, you know, all of the things that we've faced. Our values have have been um, very useful uh, in in those different contexts. Uh, I, I remember thinking like almost being um, hesitant and and worried about how much time, you know, as directors, you had us putting into helping with this values thing. I'm like, what's this values thing? Is this kind of like the Stephen Covey stuff? And, and, and for one thing, I wasn't doing justice to the Stephen Covey st- stuff, because at the time, I didn't fully understand it. But, um, you know, I was sort of thinking, what is this kind of hocus pocus, but it became <laughs> this, yeah, it became <laughs> this really powerful, um, you know, I don't know, compass maybe to help in our decision making. Uh, and it was something that I think a lot of us came to Lullabot because we believed in open source and the principles underlying open source. And our values are close there to to sort of why people, you know, do open source software, um, transparency, open communication, um, you know, kicking ass, ma- mastery, you know, having an impact in the world. Like these are all things that you know, we got into open source software uh, for in the first place. Um, and, you know, as as we've evolved, they've actually proven to be very, very, um, what's the word I'm looking for, Jeff, uh, enduring, um, you know, and, and effective for us. Um, and uh, so I, I think that's a piece of it. Um, I think loyalty is a piece of it. You know, so Lullabot, um you may have talked about this before, but we maintain a cash reserve um, of between 10 and 12%. And the idea there is that it provides um, protection and possibilities. And the protection side of it is occasionally when we have these downturns, these cyclical downturns in the services industry uh, that, that, that happen sometimes, you know, at least so far, what we've been able to do is is dip into our cash reserve to to ride it out uh, instead of um, doing layoffs. And so, I think that commitment and that loyalty um, from the company to its people, um, to me, speaks volumes, and probably is also something that that keeps people here. You know, I think when people feel valued and safe and trusted, you know they don't have as much reason to be looking for the next thing or, or, or waiting to, to jump. Um, we, we kind of went through a downturn, um, last year and I was reading this book, uh, by Simon Sinek called eaters, leaders, eaters, leaders eat last. Um, and, uh, it was profoundly timed to kind of the tough spot that we were going through. But, one of the things that it kind of uh, has as a central idea is that this whole kind of layoff culture, uh, you know, where the minute the finances take a bad turn, even for a quarter, you should instantly correct. And the way to correct is through layoffs. This is a fairly new idea. So Sinek traces it to some layoffs in the aeronautics industry that happened in, the, I think it was like 79 Hmm. Um, right, right before, or it might've been right at the beginning of, of Reagan's presidency in 80. Uh, but that this was kind of a new idea at the time. Like before that, it was like, you know, you were a company man, you were loyal to loyal or woman, you were loyal to the company and the company was loyal to you. And there were pensions and there was a much deeper contract between employer and employee. And, you know, we went and we swung way far to the other extreme where it became more about just, you know, Things aren't looking good. Let's lay people off. Um, and those decisions, you know, were made very quickly and, and without much thought for the human beings and the human impact. Um, and I think we're now swinging back to, you know, a better place that sits somewhere between those two things where people still have the freedom to leave and go do other things if that's what they want to do. I mean, Lullabot even has a section in our handbook called What to Do If You Want to Quit. Uh, you know, and it's sort of like, yeah, you're a free human being, you know, go out and we, and we will wish you well, if that's your decision and where, what you want to do. Um, but at the same time, like, you know, we as a company also, I think, feel the onus to show loyalty to our people. And, and I think that's powerful. It's sort of mutual trust, uh, and mutual obligation a little bit. Um, yeah, it's like a good, you can think of it almost like a good relationship, you know, a good marriage or a good, a good romantic relationship. It's like, 
you know, both partners still need to have their identities and feel free to grow and pursue whatever their needs are in their lives. Um, and, and hopefully the relationship doesn't hold you back from that. But, but, uh, you know, at the same time, it should be based on trust and loyalty and, and not just, you know, transactional. Yeah. The, the, sometimes the, um, I had Jared Ponchot on the, on the podcast and, and now I've had you from Lullabot on the podcast and hopefully we're sharing information that everyone, everyone can use. We're not being too self-promoting or self-congratulating, but if you are interested in reading Lullabot's uh, core values, you can find them at lullabot.com slash values if you're interested in that kind of thing. Um, let's kind of folk, look at look at a more outward focus, Seth, and talk about your role um, in Lullabot sales um, and how sort of this issue of legitimacy, um, this has become a little bit less of an issue as time has gone on and, and people start to look at uh, remote work and distributed companies a little bit differently. Um, and as Lullabot has obviously built its um, portfolio and, and we've, we've done a lot of um, kind of uh, projects that have built our legitimacy. Um, but I'm I'm curious to hear um how 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 this comes up or might come up in the, in the sales process you know when you're out there pitching a company uh you know saying yeah we can you know do your entire digital experience for you and uh, help you with whatever you need um and they say okay well where's your office how, how does that kind of stuff come up or are, are there issues around that? It, it really doesn't anymore. Um, there was a time where sometimes that would come up, but I think when people sort of see uh, the clients that we've had, you know, they, they see our case studies, the kind of work that we've done um, that really ends that conversation pretty quickly. Um, so oftentimes in a sales conversation, if I ever you know, it would probably be while we were qualifying a lead, you know, you may, you may do some name dropping and say, you may have heard of such sites as msnbc.com or sci-fi.com. Yeah, we, you know, we did that. And that tends to like sort of silence whatever doubts, you know, may be provoked by the fact that you're a distributed company. Um, I think also like, I think uh, when Thomas Friedman, you know, talked about the world being flat, um, I think it continues to flatten. I think Thomas Friedman was a little ahead of himself and, and, you know, ahead of the time. And there was sort of this big move to, to offshoring. And then there was this big reaction against offshoring and everybody said, Oh, offshoring, you know, you get crappy results and mm -hmm. it kind of swung back the other direction. And now I feel like we're into almost the maturation of that globalization where I think everyone's starting to realize like, people are just people and, and there's great people and there's not so great people. And so you've got to find great people and, and they may be in India, they may be in the United States, they may be wherever. Um, that seems to come up much more than, um, whether we're distributed or not distributed. So I think the fact that our people are mostly North American U S based folks, um, for a lot of companies, they have security, uh, you know, safe harbor driven regulations around like who they can work with and where they can work for. Uh, and, and, you know, we check those boxes. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's really helpful, you know, and I feel for some of the, like, there's a great Drupal shop in Siberia of all places. Um, but they're going to get ruled out of a lot of work just because of th this type of, you know, regulation and, and security stuff where it's like, Oh, Russia. Oh no, we don't, we don't go there. Like, you know, our data is not safe or we don't want, you know, da, 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 da. Sure. So, you know, I think that's more of the thing that'll come up much more than distributed. I think it's more and more common too, that our clients actually have distributed full-time employees of their own all over the place. Um, and, and that didn't used to be a thing and it's increasingly a thing. So I guess w what advice would you have for, uh, um, a younger company, uh, perhaps building itself out, uh, in a distributed fashion that hasn't quite build, 
built that legitimacy yet? Um, that's a that's a really tough question. You know, one of those like chicken and egg type things. Like, how do you how do you get there in the first place um, to where you can quickly quell those doubts? I mean, to some degree, you could talk about a lot of the things that you talk about on this podcast. I'm sure, like the trends, the data. You know, more and more people are are working from home. There's more and more newspaper stories. You know, every day, the New York Times about. Um, the legitimacy of work from home workforces, you know, it's no longer the, but if you're, if you're fighting, if you're fighting that battle with a potential client, you've already kind of lost. Right. I mean, yeah, you know, yeah, maybe it's, not I think the right this is, yet. this is the same, this is the same legitimacy battle that all new companies need to need to fight out. Right. They need to kind of prove themselves to be good, uh, to, to be good why we still have salespeople, you know, like yeah. there's something about that person that you meet and you look in their eyes or shake their hand or whatever other cliches. And you feel a sense of trust that they're going to be able to deliver on what they're telling you and you make your decision. And and that's sort of across any business um, that, that sort of FaceTime I think in sales is still really important. So one thing that I would say to this prospective distributed company is, don't expect your sales to be, uh, you know, all uh, remote or distributed or, you know, what mm-hmm. you, you're going to have to actually go and meet people to get them to sign contracts. And so as the owner, you're often the, the chief salesperson in the beginning as an entrepreneur, um, you know, go out locally and, and get involved and meet people and, and start doing work in your area. And, and then as you start to, you know, have accomplishments that are noteworthy, you can, you can broaden yourself out. So an example, you know, there's a design shop that I love that we know well called Bearded. And, you know, they started as a local firm in, in Pittsburgh. And, you know, the, it's the kind of thing where they would do some work for a university locally, like Carnegie Mellon or a museum locally. And then once they had done that with the local connection, then they would go out to other museums and other universities mm-hmm. And say, hey, look, you know, we did this work um, that, you know, and, and then it doesn't matter so much that you're not in that university or that museum's hometown because they can tell that one of their peers, you know, already had a successful engagement. Yeah. And you're sort of pivoting off of the like you do the local thing because it's related to you because you're geographically related. Uh, and then once you've done that, you can pivot now you're you're related to that vertical right we built a college website let's go to another college and you can kind of keep pivoting off that and and uh sort of building legitimacy that way yeah get a foothold locally in a vertical get to know that business and then just keep doing more and bigger work within that that space yeah yeah and maybe there are other other you know the sort of di- different definitions of local like when Matt and I had established a presence in the Drupal community Drupal was local right it was we were around in Drupal uh and so you know getting Drupal projects was was um relatively I don't know if it easy is quite the right word, but, but we were around, uh, in the same way. I think that people look for, um, you know, services for people, you know, I always sort of wonder why people would hire a local web developer, uh, because the work isn't going to live locally. Um, but I think that there's just sort of peace of mind that people have in that. But if you can find other, other ways to pivot that same kind of thing, that's good too. Let me ask you some of the uh, standard podcast questions, Seth. Um, um, I've basically gotten it down to just two. Um, how do you think uh, being distributed makes things harder for you and for Lullabot? Yeah. Um, when you have a really sort of monumental task um especially on the administrative side that needs um you know like four or five people in a room for a week it's really hard to do that so for example um lullabot is right now we have a 
a, a CFO that we work with um, that's actually a separate company. Um, and then there's four or five of us that are involved in wrapping up end of the month finances. And we all have our own little different tasks that we do. But no one really knows what anyone else does. Um, I, oh, that's overstating the case. Like we could certainly put it together if somebody was hit by a meteor. But, you know, what would be extremely valuable in this in- instance would be to, at the end of the month, have the five of us, you know, kind of lock ourselves in a room for three or four hours a day and walk through all of the different processes and document them on a whiteboard. And, you know, there's occasionally those types of things that come up and contemplating spending four hours on a Google Hangout with the screen share is just less enticing than, <laughs> than being in person and having having that face-to-face connection. And the way around that, I think, is that you you bite the bullet and, and fly people to, to a place to be together and, and to work on it. And I think that's what we're going to do in this case. But there are certain things, um, you know, Jared Ponchot, bless his heart, has figured out, I think, one of the hardest, which is like design collaboration. And there's another podcast about that. Um, but in general, you know, those sorts of things where it really helps to be you know, in the same room, uh, I think the problem with Google Hangouts is it kind of has an expiration date. Like you can stay focused for maybe an hour, maybe an hour and a half. Um, and at that point, you are just not going to, you know, it's not going to work to be in a hangout and, and be able to really stay present with a, with a meeting um, or, or some sort of task. Now, maybe you take breaks and you break it up. I mean, there's different ways that you could slice that apple. But the best would be if it if we could, uh, the best would be if we could, um, you know, find a way to, uh, sorry, my daughter just walked in. This is, this is the other thing that's <laughs> hard is, about distributed company. Speaking of what's hard. You're yeah. on a podcast and your kids come in and tell you the sink <laughs> is leaking and you say, I can't talk right now. And then they tell you again, no dad, the sink is leaking. So that may mean that I need to wrap things up here pretty quickly, but yeah, draw back. There you go. Some distractions, yeah. just sort of the the distractions of, yeah, yeah. Well, it would be much worse if the sink was leaking and you were at work and you didn't even know it. I suppose. <laughs> yeah. So sure. so that so so that's your take on what's harder. What what what's easier about working at a distributed company? Um, for me, uh, having and maintaining my energy for work. Um, is like almost the number one thing. Like there's this thing that would happen to me when I worked in a co-located company where around two or three o'clock, like I'd be, you know, falling asleep at my desk, like looking like, is there a place that I can crawl in this office and be totally invisible and like nap (laughs) 20 minutes and, and, um, and you're exhausted for those, those later hours, you know, you eat a big lunch, you've been in meetings all day. There's this, this sort of like, it, it feels almost like an endurance challenge. And, um, working from home where I can have a little bit more balance in my schedule. And, you know, maybe, maybe there's some hours at night, maybe I take some hours off at lunch for whatever reason, I just don't end up grappling with that particular phenomena the way I used to almost every day. Um, so the, the continuity of energy, I feel like, uh, when you work, um, from home is, is much more, it's much easier to be in your own rhythms. And when you're in your own rhythms, you can show up as your your most productive self, your best self, your most efficient self, and and I think that that is a huge advantage. Well, on that note, I'll let you uh, get to your leaky sink. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Jeff. <laughs> Thanks for joining us on the podcast, Seth. Thanks for having me. It was a real pleasure. All right, bye. <laughs>